We record these sermons. This is, I'm saying that for a bunch of people who aren't here, but the reason I say that is because I know how long they are, uh, because I record them and put them on the internet, and I'm not sure I needed that big of a hint. <laughs> Last week's was only 36 minutes. It was six minutes over, but I'm not sure that. We've been looking through the Bible and um, trying to point out Christ in our relationships. Uh, point out that, that we know God uh, and we know Christ. We don't just know facts about Him. And, um, and something why, why try to separate Him from the Father? Well, why try to separate? Because we really can't. I mean, when it gets down to it, like, is this talking about the Father? Is this talking about Christ? Why do we need to separate them anyway? Well, ordinarily I'd agree with you, except that they separated themselves in terms of defining. Prior to Christ coming, they weren't known as the Father and Son. They, 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 didn't, they, they kept all that from us, I guess. They kept that from humanity. And as, as you start from, from, from the beginning of creation, I mean, there's little hints. In the, in the beginning, God, God created everything. He said, let us make man in our image. So there's little hints at it throughout this, this idea. And then we come to um, uh, we come to uh, Abraham and we come to Moses. He says, they didn't know me by this name, but I'm going to reveal a little bit more of myself to you. Uh, and so, so we come to Christ and then, and then from that point we understand and he reveals a little bit more. So, so it's not me who's separating anything. I'm not, I'm not trying to do something that, that hasn't been done. Christ wanted to define further for us. God wanted to reveal. And so, so in specifically talking about Christ. We're this month focusing on it. As we take each month, we're going to look at a slightly different topic. And we've been starting where you should start. Talking about the deity of Christ. The, his, his nature as God. And when we, when we talk about His nature as God, we sometimes feel a little bit like we're, you know, we talked about this last week. How, I don't know, are we giving Him you know, are we putting him above where he needs to be? Well, you can't put God above where God should be. We began talking about Christ's eternal nature, that he is the Alpha and Omega, and we've, we've seen his claim to equality, the I Am, that he is Jehovah. And last week we looked at his, uh, his role as creator. Now, power is what we're going to focus on today. And power comes sometimes in an unexpected form. Uh, this week, you might have heard it on the news. Probably wasn't. Maybe it wasn't on your radar. There was a 100th anniversary of a flood. Did anybody hear this? A, a, a flood in Boston. Um, it wiped out. It was kind of a localized flood. It just wiped out um, three or four city blocks. Did you, you hear about this? This is what it looked like here. Oops, i got to turn that thing on. That was what it looks like, kind of dim here. It comes in unexpected. Now, that looks like major devastation. That's the, the, the old train um, tracks there. And this is in the north end of Boston. It was a <clears throat> flood of molasses. Can you hear that? Um, so, when, next time someone says slow as molasses, you can tell them that molasses sometimes moves at 35 miles an hour. And, and it has... 25-foot waves. And it completely devastated a small area. Um, 
how, how unexpected. Uh, it was uh, the the story is kind of there was actually an entire book written about it. Uh, the, the story is that they used to sell, the, the store out, uh, molasses to produce alcohol, um, and uh, it was I, ironic is the day after this happened, um, Nebraska became the 36th and, and um, the determining state to uh, vote. Uh, to to begin prohibition for the amendment of prohibition. So so alcohol was illegal the next day. Uh, after that, not sure that would have made a difference. But it was it was stored in this uh, in this five or four foot tower, poorly designed. And uh, in fact, it was so poorly designed that they painted it brown so that um, that that people wouldn't see the leaking molasses. And and little kids. In fact, one girl was killed. Um, they would come with pails to catch the dripping molasses and take home because things it was you know finances were kind of tight uh, back then uh, and, and uh, unfortunately it eventually just busted loose and and, and destroyed an entire town. You say how unexpected? How unexpected? And imagine as we talk about Christ, well, how unexpected. Mary holding a baby and saying, this is the, the Almighty. Right? And that's what we're going to talk about, the, the power of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 1-2, we're going to compare two verses here. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So, so the first thing we think about Christ, this is obviously a prediction of Christ, is that, well, he wasn't that impressive. Where is the power? Where is the majesty? But we turn to Genesis 17, 1-3. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, and we're going to, what he said to him, and that's a whole long chapter. But, but I want you to notice that, that, that whatever it was that Abraham saw, was impressive. And so we, we draw this distinction between these two. Um, we're talking about the Almighty. Uh, want to look at this um, verse though, Revelation 21, 22, right near the end. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so, so while we, we think, well, they must be talking about those previous two verses that we looked at must be talking about somebody different because here's this unimpressive one and here's someone that Abram fell down and worshipped was so impressive and called him the Almighty. The Almighty is Christ. The Almighty, the Lamb. What? Well, sometimes the Almighty comes in a unexpected package. Certainly, we look through the Gospels and we see that they could not come to accept that Jesus was the Almighty. He was unimpressive to them. Not what they had in mind. Well, another passage in Revelation, I want to just review a little bit. Uh, 4, 8 through 11. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, which are full of eyes all around within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. 
and worship him who lives forever and ever. And we go, well, this must be talking about the Father. We've already seen that the Almighty is the Lamb. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And we talked about this. This, this contains some of the references to was and is and is to come, the Alpha and Omega. We've already talked about Christ as the Alpha and Omega. And last week we talked about Christ as the Creator. The same one who Abram fell down and worshipped is the one who the angels and these creatures who are kind of bizarre to us as we read this with full of eyes and all these... They fall down and worship Christ. Christ, in some forms, has come and it's been unimpressive. Deliberately so. But He is the Almighty. And so we want to look at Jesus as the Almighty. The word Almighty is used 58 times in the Bible. Most of those in two books. Here in Revelation. Nine of the ten times it appears in the New Testament, it is here in the book of Revelation. And in the Old Testament, it's interesting that it is, uh, of the remaining 48 times in the Old Testament, 31 of those occur in the book of Job. Job, we're going to look at Job and we're going to look at Revelation a lot today. Um, Job is an interesting book because it is, it's before Moses' law, it's before God has really given anything written to people. And, and, and Job wasn't Hebrew that we know of. He, he, the Bible says that he lived in the East somewhere. And Job's friends, and, uh, they're, they're all wrestling with, with the concepts of God. And so sometimes the, his friends reference God as the Almighty. Sometimes Job. And none of them know that they're actually talking about Christ. They don't know the concept of the Christ. They're all trying to, in one way or another, put God in a box. And they all get kind of taken the task for it at the end. They're all... And we sometimes we put down Job's friends. I'm going to look at some of the things they said. They were trying their best. And you look at... They were trying to be so noble. And in fact, some of the things that they say are more noble about God than the things that Job said. They were trying to be so reverent and yet some some ways they miss the mark they had correct doctrine we begin with doctrine we begin with understanding things about Christ Job's friends had some correct doctrine but sometimes right does not equal helpful you ever notice that you can be right and not be that helpful well I'm right yes you are <laughs> And nobody's, and that was Job's friends. Job's friends, I think, when I read through, when I just kind of step back from what I know about Job, Job's good, okay? I go into a story, you read a story, you kind of know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, right? So, so we know Job's friends are the bad guys, and Job is the good guy. And so we kind of want to make Job's friends always wrong. But when you step back and read the book of Job, I find myself agreeing more with Job's friends than Job. I just do. I'm like, eh, it seems pretty right to me. I like their doctrine better. Their doctrine ended up not helping Job at all. That was their problem. They were just bad friends. <laughs> they were horrible at. You know, we can have correct beliefs. We, we sit here and we can think that, oh, I'm so right. And we can be right and not be 
helpful to the world around us. Well, what was Job's friend's doctrine? Let's look at some of the things. Um, this is, uh, I think this is Eliphaz. This is Eliphaz. No, this is Zophar. I needed some classes on how to name baby names. Zophar. This is what Zophar said. He said, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol or the grave. What can you know? I agree with that statement. Who can understand anything about God? The doctrine is fine. The Almighty has no limits. There's zero limits to God. He is beyond comprehension. Well, I just don't understand God and the Trinity thing and all, all these different ideas. You know, sometimes you just don't know. And sometimes you need to not try to know. Uh, at least understand. Know it, but don't understand it. What I mean by that is, is someone told me one time, and I appreciate this, it's helped me out a lot. If God, if you could explain God, that would logically mean that God fit inside of your mind. The concepts and, and what God summarizes would fit inside of your mind. And if God could fit inside of your mind, then He would be no bigger than your mind. And if He would be no bigger than your mind, then He would not be able to help you when your mind can't help you. You can figure out everything that you need if you could figure out God. You need a God that you cannot understand. And that's what Zophar says. Zophar says, you can't, there's no limits on God, and He's higher than anything you can possibly come to grips with. So, uh, we move on to Eliphaz. This is what Eliphaz says. Um, and I like this. This guy's a little bit closer, even still, uh, to, to getting to something practical. If he says, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold of ochre among the stones of the torrent bed, I have no idea what that is, uh, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Maybe the torrent bed is like a floodplain. I don't know. Um, kind of practical. Listen, if you understand that God is Almighty, you should probably live a certain way. Now, the problem here, and, and what's going on in this chapter, if we read the whole of this chapter, they've concluded, okay, these are some things we know. And this is where the doctrine is a little bit off. They, they've concluded that God rewards good and punishes bad. That's a generally true statement. What they've done is they've extrapolated that to be without exception. That all things, if bad things happen, it's because it's a punishment. So they, they've taken it a little bit too far. So they have assumed, and they're trying to convince Job, well, you've done something bad. And that's what this is about. This is not just a general statement. They're actually... A, Telling Joe, you've done something bad and you've done some injustice somewhere, you need to repent of it. Without knowing anything about what he's done in his personal life. But he emphasizes the behavior. What he is correct in is that he emphasizes that knowing God as the Almighty should affect our behavior. And that's where we get to knowing the Almighty. Where we get to the transition between knowing facts about 
Christ as the Almighty and knowing Him and knowing what He wants and doing what He wants. Go back to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22 and 23. Pull a little bit more of this back in your side. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We read that. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. This is a difficult passage to understand and it could mean one of several things. And I think both are in a way are true. Is it a reference to heaven? That's the first thing I'm drawn to and, and 21 and 22 were drawn to the concepts of heaven. That's quite possibly what that's talking about. There certainly is not likely to be a temple in heaven. So that would make this a true statement. Or is it talking about something else? Is this, is this possibly a metaphorical reference to the church? Both are, are true. Um, in chapter 21, verse 3, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And this seems to indicate more the, the latter, but I, both are true. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. We have several references in the Bible that talk about the church being the temple and, and, and us as individuals being the temple of the Holy Spirit that God lives in and lives with man. See, God has already moved away from, and we've talked about moving away from a dependence on a physical structure as the, as the place of worship. And he's, he's moved into our lives. He said, I want to make this more about a relationship. Well, heaven is just a natural extension of that without any limit in time. It is just an extension of what we have here in the church. So it's true in both cases. But it's always about the relationship between us and Christ. So I want to establish a connection. Uh, establish a connection. Establish a connection. What do you mean, establish a connection? I mean, establishing a connection between me and the Almighty. Because I'm down here and can't comprehend Him. And He's all big and up there. Right? And I'm supposed to have this relationship. He's kind of in me. But just really... All right, let's, let's bring this to... individually, how this applies to me. First thing I want to do is recognize the first thing you have to do, we talk about knowing about before you can know. Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is eternal, and he always lives for one purpose. His nature, his ability to save. That's the second, uh, first thing. Uh, before we move on, if I believe I can't be saved, <clears throat> then I make myself the Almighty. Think about that. If, if I have been too bad in my life, well, I have done something that limits Jesus. It says he's, 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 uh, back that up here. 
he is able to save to the uttermost. That means the furthest that you think you could be away from God, he can save that. He can bring that situation. Someone talked about, uh, Sue mentioned somebody this morning that is in a, a, an incredibly difficult position. And we look at someone who is in drug abuse and you say, that person is, that, that is impossible. No. It may be close to impossible. But God is willing and able to save to the furthest person. And if I think I am the furthest or that person is the furthest away, we have made somebody actually more powerful than Christ. Well, is Christ almighty or is He not almighty? We can make ourselves higher than we really are if we think that we are too bad to be saved. Well, once we know that fact, we need to internalize that fact. Let's go back to Job for just a second because Job gives some answers. He says, all right, my turn. My turn. Job didn't just know some facts, but he internalized some facts. He says, therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider I am in dread of him, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Oh, that's not a pretty picture. We don't like that picture. We like the lovey-dovey God. Don't we? I, I like the God of peace and joy and happiness. He's all of that. And Job says, I've internalized this a particular way. And read the end. Read the end when, when, when the prophet comes in. And then when God speaks out of a tornado directly to Job. And tell me if God focuses on the lovey-dovey pictures of Himself to Job. No. God is a God to be terrified of. Not only. That's one aspect of His character. To understand power. To be around unbridled power. I hate horses. I love them from a distance. Very pretty. Elegant. Stand next to a big old horse. I don't like being there. I know when I was a little kid, um, I got placed on a horse. I think it's probably a Shetland pony. I was, I was, it's one of my first and very formative memories. As a little kid, we had a, we had a family. And the church was a big family. That's basically what it was when I was a little kid. And one of them put me on a horse. And I just remember being miles off of the ground. I haven't liked them since. Now, I will look at them and they're very nice. But to be near, it's just the muscles on top of muscles. That's a lot of power. And it's kind of scary. God says, I am, I am almighty. I am muscles on muscles. Job says, I'm afraid of that. That is something to be afraid of in a good way. It is something to be awed by the power. It's great when it's on your side. But when you're not on the right side of it, it's something to be scared of. So be scared. Internalize. Be intimate with Christ's power. Get up close to it. That's where you get scared at. Up close. From a distance, God. When you get up close, 
that you recognize the power. I want you to know the difference, by the way. We talk about a personal relationship. I want you to look, understand the difference between personal and casual. There's a difference there. Personal relationship does not imply a casual relationship, where it's just kind of casual implies sort of this lack of reverence. It's casual. We're not to be casual. We are to make it personal, but not casual. Next thing, I want to vocalize it. Mm. That's kind of weird. No, it's not. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus was passing from there and two blind men followed him, saying out loud, Have mercy, son of David. So he entered the house. The blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now, need to un- Jesus didn't go anywhere alone. Right? Jesus was always in a crowd. If Jesus was walking somewhere, people were following him. He had his own personal paparazzi. And everyone, whether they liked him or not, wanted to be around him for one reason or another. And so here's these two blind men. Now, I don't, they just follow the crowd. They can't see him. So they're just like, no, he's over here because there's a whole crowd over here. So they're walking over here. Hey, son of David. We want to see you. We want to, we want to look. We want to see again. Why didn't Jesus just heal them? Jesus knows what's in their heart. But he says, hey, you think I can do it? He's asking them to vocalize it. Do you really believe? Because there's a lot of critics in the crowd. In front of these people, do you think I can actually do this? Vocalize it. Say it out loud. Paul told Timothy, he talked about a confession that they made in front of many witnesses. He says, talking about, you made the good confession in front of many witnesses. Baptism is not a little private personal event. It's not a little thing that we can do off or supposed to do off in a little corner. Now, I know you can tell me about Philip and the unit. There wasn't a crowd to bring. Otherwise, Philip would have brought them. But where possible, it is a thing to be done in front of people. I'll just make a confession in front of many witnesses. Put yourself out there. Put yourself on record. Do you think I'm able to do this? Do you think I'm capable? Now you're on record. Hey, I thought you said this was something you were going to do for your life. I thought this was a, 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 a life-changing decision for you. I remember. I was there. Vocalize it. Do you think I'm able to say it to the uttermost? If I am ashamed to vocalize that in front of people who have the same belief. I mean, there's no one in this, there's no critics in this crowd, I don't think. 
If I'm not, if, if I'm too ashamed to vocalize it in front of people who actually agree with me, what are the chances that I will ever leave here and vocalize it to people who are critics? Not a chance. Not a chance. If I'm too ashamed to make a decision in front of people who want me to make the decision, well, there's no chance that I'll leave and tell people who disagree with me what decision I made. So vocalize it. And the last one, actualize it. I have made a covenant, Job says, with my eyes. How could I look upon a young woman? What would be my portion from God? Above and my heritage. Uh, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty? Uh, you see, it always came back to the Almighty with him. That was the concept that drove him to do whatever he did. Isn't calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for workers of evil? Doesn't he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has run to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. That's a bold statement. Listen. Let God judge me. In front of everybody, God will judge me. <laughs> That's a bold statement. That is confidence. This whole chapter is Job saying, you've accused me of this, 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 and this. And I didn't do them. I don't know what you guys are smoking, but I trust the Almighty. And I didn't do any of that. What possible motivation would there be to do those things since I know I'm going to be judged by an Almighty. The same Almighty that can rescue you from any situation can punish any situation. This all gets wrapped up into one thing. Christ is the Almighty. He didn't just know about God, but He knew Him. And He knew what He expected and he knew what he'd punish. Huh? He says, what am I going to get from God if I do that? He knows very well what the result is. Actualize it. Live it. And so his answer is that his belief about what he knows about God has made him aware of the consequences of his actions. I know what to get if I do this or if I do that. Because I'm terrified of that. We'll close with just a couple of things. Number one, am I resisting? Well, <clears throat> I only resist if I think that there's a chance I can win. Right? I only fight back if I think I can win. If I've given up resisting, it's because I don't think that there's a chance. We're talking about hope. There's no hope. Now, someone who's defeated has no hope. But God says, I am able to save to the uttermost. If I've stopped resisting, I've lost my reason for hoping. We <clears throat> fought with Anthony. He was one and one and a half, something like that, over food. He wouldn't eat his food. 
It was lunch or breakfast. I don't remember what it was. Uh, but he wouldn't eat. So I think it was lunch. So we just sat in there. The rest of the kids got down. This was the longest day. The, the longest day. We wouldn't let him get down from the table. He sat there while the kids went and played. He was still sitting there when it was time for a coffee break, which actually doesn't include coffee. The majority of the time it includes chocolate uh, or some other sugar-filled item. And he watched them have coffee breaks. But he couldn't have it. And he cried. But he was too intent on winning. I don't let my kids win. I don't. I am the king of the house. They are not. My kids don't win. So Anthony proceeded on towards supper time. Now, he hasn't had lunch, coffee break, and we go to supper time. So we put supper, good, nice supper, but he's still got his whatever it was from lunch. Like, you can have that lunch. I think it was a Wednesday night. It might have been a Tuesday. I can't remember if we had church that night. Different children have uh, tried this on us, but Anthony was the most stubborn of them all. And um, it came to lunchtime. Well, he went through lunch, or through supper, rather. I was a poor kid. He'd been spanked. He'd been, I don't encouraged. He'd been offered, bribed, whatever, right? <laughs> We've tried everything. He was not going to, I'm like, if I spank him anymore, it's child abuse. So, I'm like, it's now 10 o'clock. It's bedtime. Kids are going to bed. Kids are in bed. He would not. And he's, he has been sitting at the table all day. He's got a will. I'm getting to the point of the story. I finally tried sleep deprivation because he's now falling asleep in his high chair. I shake him. Sleep deprivation. Ah, I just want to sleep. Nope, you're going to eat. I wanted one bite. I, all I wanted, I wanted a victory. He finally ate it. That was like 10.30, 11 o'clock. He was, he was so tired, he didn't even want to eat. I, I then offered him, you know, whatever he wanted. No, he just wanted to sleep. So he went to bed. Next day, he tried it again. That, no, that was Tuesday. The first day was Tuesday. Wednesday, he tried it. I'm like, oh my goodness, we got church. He made it about four hours. Like, well, that's an improvement. The next day he tried it again. It lasted about five minutes. Why did he give up? Because he knew he was going to lose. That's the whole reason I told you that story. He knew he had no hope to win. So he gave up quick. We give up when we have no hope. When we're beaten down and we think, there's no way I'm going to win this war. There is an almighty. There is an almighty. You can fight against them. You're not going to win. But the positive side of the almighty is that you can always win. There's somebody always on your side. If you're, if, if you have, listen, if you're resisting against God, you're not going to win. But if you've given up in resistance against life, it's because you don't understand and you, you fail to accept that Christ is the Almighty over whatever situation you have. You know, <clears throat> that story 
How are you suffering? Yeah, it's the only one who suffered in that. Well, no, that's not true. We suffered. The one who suffered the most was Anthony. Anthony who caused himself all the problems. He missed coffee break and had to sit there all day, had to watch them. The one who suffered was the one who didn't have to suffer. I mean, the one who had that ability to choose the whole time. In which way is your fighting causing you to suffer? Whatever the thing is that you've decided, this is where I'm going to, this is the hill that I'm going to die on. (laughs) I'm going to die on this hill. Is it worth it? How is it how is it making life better for you? You're just suffering. If I've made parts of my life off limits, God, I'm dying on this hill. You can't have this. I'm like, you're hurting yourself. Those parts of my life are the things God says, I can take those things and make those livable. I can save those parts. You're holding on to the avenues and the, 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 the structures of your life that I can take and make worth something. Don't resist the Almighty.